You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. The sermon title this morning is Redemption in Our Adoption. Redemption in Our Adoption. My aim today in this message is to, to remind you of your salvation. There are so many glorious aspects of our salvation and of how redemption um, is that it's like looking at a prism and seeing the light refract into so many different colors. And in the same way, there is only one salvation and yet there is a universe of glories in this great salvation. Psalm 3.8 and Jonah 2.9 both say that salvation belongs to the Lord. And so my goal, by God's grace, is that you would love the redemption of God even a little bit more. That you would understand how we've been redeemed even if just a little bit more that you would taste and, and see the riches of his grace that you've been adopted in and that it may overflow in thanksgiving and, and multiply into heartfelt sacrificial worship, a true worship that would lead to endurance, that would lead to a personal regard of holiness to a, a greater of greater love of, of humanity generally and a, a greater love of the family of God specifically. And that it would be to an ever deepening appreciation of what Christ has done for us. And that we would be bold in our witness to that all for the good of these cities and for the glory of God. But the thing is, we can't do this in our own strength. This is only possible with God. And so let us go to our Father one more time. Father, by the grace of your spirit, And in your son's name, we ask for your help. We need your grace. Lead us and guide us in your will and for your glory. Amen and amen. All right, so so this passage continues the train of thought from last week's message from Pastor Jonathan, which was the second half of Galatians chapter three. We started seeing the, the glorious reality that God is our father and that we are his children. We saw that the law was added because of transgressions. We saw that Paul was not being exhaustive about the uses of the law under the new covenant, but because of the specific context that the Galatian church was facing, Paul was being clear that the law could not save. There were false teachers that were saying Christians needed to believe in Jesus and live under the Mosaic law to have life. 
As I heard it once said, when it comes to salvation, Jesus plus something equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The message of the gospel is that law-keeping does not give life, but only grace through faith in Jesus. That alone gives life. And so the Apostle Paul here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 finishes his train of thought from the previous passage about how the law was meant to be a guardian. Galatians 4, 1 through 2 says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Verses 1 and 2 is describing Paul and all Israelites under the old covenant and its protective role designed to keep them mindful of their condition, looking forward to the promises of God. He compares them to a child who has an inheritance but can't use it until they are of a certain age or until the date that is set by their parents. The the child, in regards to touching and using the inheritance, is no different than, let's say, a lawyer who helped write the will for that inheritance until the set time. The law under God's specific covenant with the people of Israel and all of its requirements was necessary in that stage of redemptive history. My, my, my two sons hate car seats. Or let's just say they find them annoying. And I'm not gonna lie, I do too. Like, just to even install it, it's like you need an engineering degree or something. I don't, I don't, it's, it, but, but the thing is, for them, in their specific stage of physical development, it is meant to protect them. It is meant to guard them until they are bigger and older. And in a similar way, that's what the law under the old covenant was like. Verse three states, in the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That phrase, elementary principles of the world, is, is, is the same wording we find in Colossians chapter 2, in verses 8 and 20, where it's translated elemental spirits of the world. And, and so the context there is similar, where, where people are being taken captive by different teachings and traditions and not walking in Jesus as they were taught. They were replacing faith and obedience to Jesus through biblical standards with a faith and obedience to another set of regulations and standards. And so Paul says there in Colossians 2.23 that that these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity, severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. This is similar to what Jesus told the Pharisees that, that the religi- religious leaders of his day in Matthew 23, 28, when he said that you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And it's actually demonic. 
The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And so back in our passage, the, the, the old covenant was a type of bondage relative to the freedom found in the new covenant. A, a commentator notes that, that Paul uses the same phrase in verse 3 in our section that he uses in verse 9 that we'll see more next week. But as he states, verse 9 is referring to the idolatrous practices in the Galatians' pagan past, drawing an implicit and shocking link between the false teachers' misuse of God's law and the pagans' allegiance to false deities. And so outside of freedom in Christ, we are enslaved. And it doesn't matter if there is a, a, a religious exterior or a non-religious exterior. Titus 3.3 says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures. John 8.34, Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. John Piper describes sin as the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. Oh, church, let us not allow our hearts to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but let us love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We saw in last week's passage that the law was added because of transgressions, that the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, that we were held captive under the law. And today in this passage, we've seen that we were enslaved. But then we are shown the glorious truth of our redemption. And this sets up how our redemption allows us to be adopted, to be the children of God. And in verse four, in the beginning of verse five, here in this fourth chapter of Galatians, it says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. 
And here we see the, the, the beautiful Christological truth that, that Jesus was the God man. He was both fully divine and fully human, truly God and truly man. Though he was born of woman, he was sent by God, sent purposefully yet just the right time. Galatians 4 continues by, by, by saying that not only was he born under the law, but, but to, he was born to redeem those who were under the law. He redeemed us. He lived sinlessly under the law and, and, and fulfilled all that the law required in his life of perfect obedience and through his atoning sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from death, he did all that was necessary to redeem us. And one aspect of our redemption is God declaring us righteous in justification. At the end of, of Galatians chapter 3, from last week's passage, it said we were held captive under the law until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Some of you might know that when I was younger, I was arrested. Uh, I got into a fight with someone, and after the police showed up, ended up getting in an altercation with them, and ended up being charged with three misdemeanors, an assault, interfering with an officer, and breach of peace. And one of the things that happened by God's grace is I had the opportunity to go through a, a specific pretrial diversion program that they offered in Connecticut where I lived at that time. And, and I was able to fulfill the requirements needed and it, it allowed me to avoid uh, criminal conviction. And so when I fill out a, a job application and the question comes up, have you ever been arrested? I can legally say I've never been arrested. And every time I've done that, it's been clean. One time I even like felt convicted like in my line, so I ended up just telling my prospective boss anyway, just in case, because I was like, I don't want this to come back to, to get me. And they were, they were cool, they understood, and they ended up hiring me anyway. And, and it came back and it, I was good, I was clean. And, and, and the thing is, in my eyes, I know what I've done. But in the eyes of the law, I have been legally declared completely innocent, and it's like it, that situation never happened. And, and in an infinitely greater way, that's what happens with us in Christ. That, that even though we are guilty by grace through faith in Christ, we are covered by the righteousness of Christ because of the blood of the cross and, and God declares us innocent. L listen, when, when someone is justified in Christ, when by God's grace they repent of their sins and, and put their faith and trust in, in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, trusting in Christ alone as their only hope for their salvation, though they are guilty, God looks at them with the innocence of Christ 
and declares them righteous. And our adoption as children, as the children of God, as sons of God, is similar. Scottish theologian John Murray wrote, adoption, like justification, is a judicial act. In other words, it is the the bestowal of a status or standing, not the generating within us of a new nature or character. In adoption, he says, the redeemed become sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty. They are introduced into and given the privileges of God's family. Listen to how the Gospel of John puts it. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The right, it goes on, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Joel Beakey on this verse says, this may be the clearest statement of adoption by God in the Gospels. For right implies a legal authority, liberty, or privilege. A believer does not receive power to make himself into a child of God, but receives the privilege of being counted a child of God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, See what kind of love, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Yo, this is crazy. This is such a glorious thought. This is wild if you really think about it. In one way, it's simple. God loves and and he loves us and makes us his children. And yet in another way, there are vast glories in that truth. There is an ocean of the riches of the goodness of God's love that is contained in that verse. It's a a, a statement that that transcends the loftiest places of the human imagination, a a truth that, that ventures deep into the eternal recesses of the heart, touching an instinctive familial desire, and yet it's also a truth that that goes outside of us, beyond the reach of space and time and journeys into the shores of eternity, to where, as the scriptures say in Ephesians 1, he chose us in him for the foundation of the world that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will is an echo of the reality that we find in Revelation that the, the, the dwelling place of God is with man and of what God proclaimed through the prophet in Jeremiah 31 when he said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. See what kind of love 
the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We really are. Romans 5, 5 says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Our adoption into the family of God is such a precious truth. God is creating in himself and for his glory a new family. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the ways of the world. We were sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. We were like the Pharisees when Jesus told them that their father was Satan. But God sent the Son to redeem us, and then God sent the Spirit of the Son because He adopted us. Verse 6 says, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We see the word Abba, which is an Aramaic word for Father, and here we see a glimpse of the mysterious glory of the Trinity at work that God sends the spirit of his son to our hearts, the the spirit of Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit who cries out with the very cry of Jesus for his father and his cry for the father becomes our cry for the father so that we can cry out to God, our father as his children. Wilhelmus Abraco, a pastor in the Netherlands in the 1600s wrote, God hears and answers his children as their loving father. As children, they take refuge in their father, even in perplexity. And by reason of this relationship, they call him Abba, Father, in an intimate manner. They bring their needs before him. And and with tearful eyes, they tell him what their sorrow is by crying out. The Lord looks upon such children. He continues these children in his love and is pleased with their childlike complaints and they're taking refuge in him. He will most certainly answer them and deliver them at his time and in his manner. Jesus in the Gospel of John says something fascinating. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. Says that to the disciples. The the disciples were, their hearts were troubled. They knew they were coming to the end of of Jesus' ministry, even if they didn't fully realize what was going to happen or or what was going on. Let me read to you John 14, 16 through 18. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's why when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, he astonishingly, astonishingly tells them to say, our Father in heaven. 
our Father. We can call God Father. What glorious truths. Here in, in chapter four of Galatians, Paul says in verse seven, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It is one thing to free someone who is enslaved, but, but God frees us, adopts us, and then allows us to be an heir through him. Our inheritance is through him. And so one important implication of our adoption is that we are heirs with Christ if we suffer with Christ. And I get this from Romans 8, 15 through 17, which is a parallel passage to our Galatians passage. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Think about this, the span of your life in light of eternity is a speck of dust. The span of your life, it's such a short amount of time. It's like a grain of sand in an ocean. And in that grain of sand, in that speck of dust is the only time in your existence, in your eternal existence, that little speck of dust, the only time you will get to suffer for Christ and to suffer with Christ. That's why Paul could say something is, as in Romans 8.18, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, listen, I, I know there's some of you are going through real suffering, or you have gone through weighty suffering, and so I'm not trying to minimize your situation, but just listen to what Paul says, who definitely suffered immensely. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. He says, so we do not lose heart. 
though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, Think about everything that, that Paul had to go through. He says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He continues as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We suffer, but we have hope in our suffering. And because of our hope, sometimes we even risk suffering out of love for the gospel, out of love for our neighbor. We risk suffering because our hope isn't in those circumstances. A pastor in Ukraine this past week in the midst of what's going on in his country wrote, we have decided to stay, both as a family and as a church. When this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. He continues, and while the church may not fight like the nation, we still believe we have a role to play in this struggle. We will shelter the weak, serve the suffering, and mend the broken, and as we do, we offer the unshakable hope of Christ and his gospel. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may we live faithfully for your glory in light of these glorious realities. Give us grace even right now to live in light of your redemption and the truth that we are your children. Thank you that we have been adopted into a, a family that spans the globe. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would give grace and strength to our brothers and sisters around the world, including Ukraine and that whole region. May we here live obediently to you and what you have placed before us in our specific lives May you be to us the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with your very comfort. Would we be renewed and sanctified through your spirit and by your truth going to you and crying out to you knowing that you are our father, our good father who cares for us and loves us with an everlasting love. All of this I ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. At the table, we are reminded that we were once children of disobedience, but now 
We are children of righteousness. We were once the children of God's wrath, but now we are the children of God's favor. We were once orphans, and like the Pharisees, our father was Satan, but now we have been adopted, and our father is God. We were once enslaved, but now we have been redeemed and are free and whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. Jesus ate the bread of despair and death so that we would be redeemed and eat the bread of life. Jesus drank the cup of God's justice so we would be adopted into the family of God and drink the cup of his peace. We're going to serve, um, I'm going to ask the pastors to come up. We're just going to serve the bread first um, and just retain it, and then we're going to come back and, and eat it together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you. <laughs> 